When Jesus had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Fathers, we read the words of Jesus. How clear, how challenging, how unlike what we see in the world. Father, why has the message changed so drastically? And why are we so willing to accept it? Would you please invigorate us today, God? Fill us with your spirit. Give us great understanding. Speak to us that we may know the changes that we may, that we all need to make because of the truth that will be taught today from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite things that we do as a church is around Christmas time. It's called a white elephant exchange. How many of you have ever done one of these things? White elephant exchange, that's when you buy something under $20 and people go to the store and some folks buy something really cute and some folks buy something really practical and some uh, folks buy something really silly. And, um, and when we look at the white elephant exchange that we have yearly as a church. Um, it's always a lot of laughs. It's always a lot of fun. Um, but here's the thing that we learned. Okay, because if you know the way that it works, it's like the first person opens up a gift. And that person opens up that gift. And if it's something they want, well, they try to hold on to it. But the next person, before they open up a gift they don't know, they can make a choice between the unknown or what person number one has. All right, so it always becomes a lot of fun, especially as gifts change hands and there's all this exchange and you realize what people like and you realize what people really don't like. All right, I think, uh, you know, we were talking this morning, you know, if like if Matthias were to open up a shaving kit, he doesn't need one because he can't grow facial hair. But for me, if I open up a toolbox, people know, Pastor John's not going to use that. If I open up a cheese assortment, well, people know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna eat that. Um, 
But if you give me something on the other hand, like something like a coffee mug or like some coffee from Starbucks, and I open that up, I'm going to hold on to that. I'm going to hope that nobody tries to take that from me. But whatever I exchange for, there, there's always going to be an exchange, and that exchange is always going to tell you about our priorities. It's always going to tell you about our preferences. Perhaps you'd agree. Because the way that life has been designed, it's a series of exchanges. We're all making exchanges always, and those exchanges always tell what's important to us. Example, one example of time. Your time is precious, because time is something that you can't necessarily get back. And so the alarm will go off in the morning, and you have to make a decision. Okay, is it worth it for me to get up and to go to work? Well, yes, I need a paycheck so I can pay my rent, or I can pay my mortgage. You make a decision, and there's an exchange. Now. On a Sunday morning, some people will say, okay, well, I have the opportunity to go fishing, or I could sleep late, or I could go to church. And again, what you choose there is an exchange, and it will reveal your priorities. It will reveal your preferences. Another example is our money, how we spend it, where we spend it. Do you get the used car, or do you get the new car? Are you going to have to work a little bit more if you get the new car? Would you be better off to put as much money as you can down on the used car, buy it outright so that you don't have a payment? That's going to reveal what's important to you. Well, it's worth it to me to work a second job just so I can have the car, just so I can have the house. And so we're always making exchanges, even at a restaurant when you're ordering. There are those moments, perhaps, that you've had in your life where you said, okay, well, I hope somebody else is paying. Then there are those moments where you said, okay, I can afford an appetizer today. I can afford the burger. Maybe you've had those moments in your life where you're like, you know what, I can afford the steak today. Getting the steak, going for the steak. It's always an exchange. And the exchange always reveals, okay, at that moment, my priority is my stomach, and it's my appetite over my wallet. So you see that I've made a lot of choices here. Okay? <laughs> and you know that the Bible talks more about money than it does about heaven and hell combined. And do you know why that is? Because money is such a good gauge of what we value. Society is based off of the idea of exchange. And so the reason the Bible talks about money more than heaven and hell and these other very important subjects is because how we spend it, what we do with it, tells what's important to us. It's also the way that we use our talents. So it's the way that we spend our time, the way that we spend our money. It's the way that we utilize the talents that God has given us. Do you use them in the secular? Do you use them to serve God? How are you using the talents that God has given you? Because we're always making exchanges. In my mid-twenties, it wasn't the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. It was a play called Hair. Hair required me to say things and do things on stage that... Uh, quite honestly, required me to do things that went up against my Christian upbringing. Okay, there was going to be full nudity on stage. And I was trying to justify doing this, um, the language and all the different things that the play entailed, and so I called up my childhood pastor. And my childhood pastor, Pastor Gary Fairbanks from down here, said, well, I'm going to send you a book. And he sent me this book called My Utmost for His Highest. Now, what I was, what I wanted Pastor Gary to do was this. I wanted him to send me something that would say, listen, Jesus is really cool with it, whatever it is that you want to do in this life. That's what I was looking for. 
Alright, instead he sends me this devotional called My Utmost for His Highest. And the very first day that I read talked about denying yourself, taking up a cross, I'm like, okay, yeah, I remember that when I was a kid going to Sunday school, but I don't think that I want to do that. I shut the book, I shut my Bible, put it back on the shelf for another few years of struggle. And there I made a choice, there I made an exchange. And that's why today is so important. Because we're living in a day and age where not only positive self-help gurus, but positive self-help gurus that are masking themselves as pastors are telling us to indulge ourselves, run away from our challenges, follow your heart, and make your mark. But it seems that the Bible says something very different according to our passage today. If you want to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That seems to be very different than what's being taught in the church today. And it forces us to a point where we have to make a decision. And that is, do we want to follow Jesus, or do we want to do things our own way and just wear the name Christian? Do you want to be a fan, or do you want to be a follower? Now, when it comes to sports, and that, that was a book by Kyle Eilman, I recommend it highly. It's a great book. It's called Fan or Follower, or something like that. Um, but if, if you know sports, you know that on Sundays you have some people that watch the game once in a while. They can care less. You have some people that if they're, giving a, they're given a ticket, they'll go to a game. You have some people that have to buy season tickets and get to every game. Then I think in Wisconsin you have these things called cheeseheads, where the Packers fans, they wear cheese on their head, no shirts, it's minus 10 degrees out, and their body is painted. Those are followers. Make no mistake. Those are not just fans. Those are followers. But we can apply the same to the church. We see this in the church today. You've got fans of Jesus, and then you've got followers of Jesus. Who are the followers of Jesus? What do they look like? Well, who better to help us understand than Jesus on this subject? Because it's a crucial one. He says, if any man desires to come after me. You're all going after something. Everybody's going after something. It's a money, it's promotion, it's a degree. Everybody is going after something. The way that you're going after it tells the world again about the exchanges you're willing to make to get it. When I was a kid, when I thought of this idea of coming after something, going after something, when I was thinking about this in preparing the sermon, I thought of one movie, Smokey and the Bandit. Smokey and the Bandit. And if you're familiar with the movie, well, the bandit drives this black Trans Am, and he's smuggling um, alcohol, and he's smuggling the alcohol, and he's being pursued, and it's hot pursuit by Sheriff, do you remember his name? Buford T. Justice. All right, and Buford T. Justice is pursuing him, and he's going after the bandit no matter what. Okay? Now, here's why. It's a little bit personal for Shepard Buford T., because his daughter has been a has abandoned his son at the altar. So now Sheriff Buford T. Justice and his son, and they're chasing after the bandit. Now, how far will he go to get the bandit? He'll go across state lines. He'll wreck it. He'll total his car. But every time somebody asks him what he's doing, he says, I'm in hot pursuit. And let me ask you, what are you in hot pursuit of? When people look at your life, when they look at the way you spend your time and your talent and your treasure, what are you in hot pursuit of? Because Jesus said, listen, if it's me, if you want to come after me, are you in hot pursuit of me? 
You want to come after me? Do you even know what that means? You see, it says here, if I read the passage right, that he's talking to two different groups. Verse 34 says, when he had called the, the people to himself with his disciples also. So you had the group over here and the crowd over here. Then you have the disciples over here. And Jesus called them both and he offers up this teaching. Why? Because the disciples had basically left their nets. They dropped their nets. They left their tax collector's booths. They left everything. And they followed Jesus, and because of that, they experienced him to the full. But then you had the crowd. And the general crowd, they heard the teachings. They saw the miracles. They heard the rumors that he was coming to take over. And they're like, you know what? Maybe this would be a good time to kind of align ourselves. Let's go see what he's really about. And so the crowd is gathering. And then every time he does this, Jesus does something to shoot himself in the foot. Every time the crowd starts gathering around, every time he starts amassing popularity, Jesus does something that any leader today would consider to be shooting himself in the foot. What's he doing here? You're saying, what do you mean Jesus is shooting himself in the foot? Here's what I mean. The crowd was lined up in this one moment when Jesus went to Jericho. They were lining up to see Jesus. Rock star status. And as he is walking through, what does he do? He tells the most unpopular man in the town, a man named Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, come down from the tree. Does that make the general population happy? No. Does it make his disciples happy? No. How are we going to grow a church like this? What are you doing? Every time he starts getting a crowd, he'll give them a teaching that says, well, if a man wants to come after me, let him uh, leave his father and, and let the dead bury their dead, or foxes have no, and uh, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to hang his head. Every time, that's, every time the crowd starts gathering, a teaching is offered that says, okay, well, if somebody wants to come after me, then they have to uh, eat my body and drink my blood. And at that point, people are going, okay, this is not quite what I had counted on. And so here, he's making it very clear. He's saying, if you want to come after me, this is what it looks like. Now, now listen. Could Jesus have rallied the crowd? Like no other human being in history. Surely you've seen these motivational speakers that say, listen, we can teach you how to have friends and how to influence people. There's even a book like that by Dale Carnegie. How to make friends, how to win friends and how to influence people. All right, certainly these motivational speakers, they can tell you how to tap into something in another human being's psyche to inspire them, encourage them, draw them toward you. If anybody could have done that, it was the one that created this, the idea of the brain, the one that created the idea of thinking. He could have done that. But that's not what he did. Instead, at crucial moments, Jesus would offer a teaching that would make most of the crowd go, hey, that's too much. I don't think I can do that. I don't think I, I, don't think I want to do that. I don't think I want to go that far. A few would respond. The disciples did. The loyal followers did. But usually the fans, they couldn't really take what he was going to say. Listen, 
Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And let's talk about denying ourselves for a minute. Denying ourselves again. That's the first thing that's going to throw up a red flag to the general population. Because we're living in a Wiffum society. You know what a Wiffum society is? What's in it for me? Wiffum. Okay? It's a what's in it for me society. So in other words, if what society is doing, if I don't think it's going to benefit me, then I'm not going to follow after it. I'm not going to go after it. And he's saying deny ourselves. That's not what society's telling me today. Society's telling me today, even the church is telling me, listen, indulge yourself. This isn't going to hurt. It's okay. It's indulge yourself. Listen, John Piper says it like this in his book, Desire and God. He acknowledges that most people, most people are always making a decision that's going to ultimately benefit themselves. Listen. He quotes Blaise Pascal. He says, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it. It's the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. Stop there. Listen for a second. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, listen, ultimately, you're going to come to follow Jesus because you believe that it's going to be the best thing for you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. There's a truth to that. But listen, what the Bible tells you now is that in order to follow Jesus, you have to deny yourself and go against everything that most of us have ever been taught. To deny yourself. You see, the one that made you, the one that numbered the hairs on your head, knows the best thing for you is him. And he knows that the best way to him is for there to be less of you. Does that make sense? So there's a teaching that says, deny yourself. Listen, when the gospel of Jesus Christ is reduced to self-help, self-improvement, we reduce it completely. We water down the message till it's unrecognizable and totally powerless. Totally powerless. Because we make it about ourselves. When it's all about glorifying God. It's about less of ourselves. It's about denying oneself. Does that mean, Pastor John, that you can never get what you want? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that at all. It just means this. It means that if you want what God is offering, when you align yourself with him and you delight yourself in him, then he's going to put the pure desires in what should really be on your heart if you delight yourself in him. And if you don't delight yourself in him because you're filling up with the things of the world, then don't expect his plan to work itself out in your life that in a way that is satisfying in any way. Piper also says this. He says, God is most glorified in man when man is most satisfied in him. God is most glorified in man when man is most satisfied in God because it's an exchange. And if you want the thing that God is calling you to, it means perhaps leaving something behind. Listen. This week, I'm looking in the mirror like this. That's not too bad. But then I do this. Like, wow. 
I thought I looked like I was three months pregnant last week. This week I graduated, took four months. Now I start panicking and I start thinking, okay, I'm jump roping, I'm doing the total gym. Maybe I need to take this to another level. So I look up keto diet with intermittent fasting. And as I'm looking that up, I'm looking at what the demands of the diet are and the workout plan. And just like when my pastor sent me my utmost for his highest, I opened it up, I read about it, I closed it, put it back on the shelf. Please pass the chicken. Make it fry. Why? Because you're counting the cost. You're denying yourself. If I want to look like this, then I can't do that. And if I want my life spiritually to look like this, then I perhaps have to deny myself a few things. Now, it's not a bad thing to have an appetite. Everybody would agree. We were created to have an appetite. But when that appetite controls your decisions to the point where it becomes gluttonous, it's not a bad thing to take pain medication when somebody's in pain. So to become utterly dependent on that pain medication to the point where it cripples you, See, we've been created with these earthly tents, and these earthly tents have real natural desires. It is not a bad thing for someone to have a sexual desire. It's a bad thing for somebody to take that desire and exercise it out of the boundaries that God laid in his word. That's what we're talking about when we're saying denying ourselves. Because if I keep filling myself with the things of the world, I'm not going to have room for the things of heaven. Some of us have been filling up on the junk food. And we don't understand what it means to deny ourselves. A couple of years ago, we did an exercise in a church fast. And somebody said, I know what I'm fasting from, Pastor John. I said, what are you fasting from? They said, porn. That's not a fast. Okay, that's just not something that you should be doing in general. Fasting is when you deny yourself of something physical, a physical necessity, so that you can receive the spiritual. Do you understand the difference, right? All right, you don't deny, okay, it's like, I'm going to fast from alcohol, I'm going to fast from heroin. No, it's not a fast. I'm going to fast from porn, I'm going to fast, these are not fasts. Those are things that are going to hurt our body anyway. Jesus was fasting in the wilderness in Matthew 4. And when he was fasting, it was a time of purification for him. And when we fast as a church, we're called to deny the physical in order to seek the spiritual. We're sending a message that, Lord, um, I know my body's saying I'm hungry, but you know what? I'm going to deny myself that in favor of wanting to hear from you so that you can give me comfort, so that you can alleviate confusion, so that you can give me strength and give me the things that I truly need. And that's denial of self. Denying self. And so that's the first thing he says. So denying ourself gives us access to the Spirit. Perhaps nobody was more famous for this than John the Baptist. John the Baptist lived in the wilderness. He had a diet of locusts and honey. All right, and I don't know how many of you have ever tried to eat a locust. Anybody? If you 
dip it in honey, it still doesn't do a whole lot. You know, it's still terrible. Right? I, I know this because when I went to the fair, I had one of those chocolate covered roaches a few years ago. And, huh? No, no, no. That was the, so that was the, that was the salted cricket. It was the chocolate covered roach, and we did the chocolate covered scorpion. Listen, no matter how much chocolate, no matter how much honey you put on these things, they taste terrible. Okay? But the point is this. John the Baptist denied himself the things of earth, and because he was denying himself the things of the flesh, what happened was, is that he was totally zoned in on the things of heaven. How many of you here could stand to be more zoned in on God's will for your life? How many of you here could stand to be zoned in on the things of heaven rather than the things of earth? If you want to be more zoned in, you have to deny yourself. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's the first part. But then the other part, it's even more crazy and even more compelling. He says, now, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Oh, you think you know what a cross is? Most of us really, really, really don't. Most of us look at the relationship that you're in. Well, this is the cross I must bear. Or we look at the job that we're at. Oh, this is the cross that I'm bearing. When Jesus said this back in the day, nobody would have said, oh, well, it's my job. It's my relationship. It's the little burden that I'm carrying. A cross during that day was an instrument of torture, and it was an instrument of execution. It wasn't some self-pitying person saying, listen, oh, I'm carrying this cross, and it's so heavy. No, 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 no. One pastor writes that a man once told his pastor, I have a fierce temper, but I suppose that is my cross. The pastor replied lovingly, that's not your cross, it's your sin. So what you carrying again? Listen. The cross at that moment was an excruciating, painful, humiliating death. When someone was carrying their cross, and again, I'm just going to read this for you real quick, is that when Jesus was carrying after having been beaten severely, the victim was often forced to carry their own crossbar to the execution. Now, the cross itself was about 300 pounds, but the crossbeam alone was about 100. After being beaten the way that Jesus was, it says that the tibulum could easily weigh 100 pounds. That was the crossbar. In the case of Jesus, the records show that he may have carried his patibulum the distance of over two football fields. In a weak and tormented state, it's no wonder it's no wonder the record establishes that he needed a great deal of assistance. Because once the victim arrived at the execution site, the patibulum, the crossbeam, was put on the ground and the victim was forced to lie upon it. Spikes about seven inches long and three-eighths of an inch in diameter were driven into the wrists. The spikes would hit the area of the median nerve, causing shocks of pain up the arm and the shoulders and the neck. Already standing at the crucifixion site would be a seven-foot-tall post called a stipe. In the center of the stipe was a crude seat to support the victim. So the victim would be up there, his arms would be stretched out, and it would be death by suffocation, basically, because of all of the injury. It was the most torturous death one could imagine. And that's the physical component of it. There's also the spiritual component of the cross, saying, listen, he's going to the cross to bear the sin of mankind. 
And that payment would be effective to anyone that repents of their sin and calls upon his name. That's what carrying the cross is. Now, brother wrote a poem. says, what is the cross? An emblem of shame, the device of death, the pinnacle of pain, a timber of truth, this lumber of loss, all hope for humanity, the Christian cross. Folly to the fool, yet wisdom to the wise, parting the earth and darkening the skies. The judgment of God was then made complete as the blood fell from my Savior's feet, blessing the ground with its life-giving flow, atoning redemption, his grace to bestow. The tragedy of the cross, only God has shown this amazing love to redeem his own. Thank you, brother. What's the cross, man? What does it mean when we're to take up our cross? Listen, when Jesus is carrying his cross, do you remember the story? That as he's carrying the cross, he can't carry his cross, and so they call this man named Simon, who was a Cyrenian. Now God had placed Simon there for a moment such as that to help a man who was God carry his cross. Now Jesus takes his cross with the help of Simon, and he carries it to Calvary, so that you and I can take up our crosses and he can help us carry them. See the exchange that's made. You can't carry the cross, you can't even understand the cross that he has for you unless you deny yourself and take up his mission because that's what it means to follow him. To take up his cross means this, it means absolute surrender. And my notes had written it like this, Absolute surrender. What does it mean? Deny yourself. Take up your cross. It means absolute surrender. Continue in Christ's mission while displaying his character at all costs. And let me read that again. For us, what taking up the cross means, it's not like, well, it's like it's having to go to work today. And it's having to get the kids to school. And these are the crosses. I, no! It's continuing in Christ's mission while displaying Christ's character at all costs. That's what it means for the Christian to take up the cross. You are here for a reason. You're here for a purpose, and it is to display, it is to display Christ to the world. And sometimes he does that through allowing you to be in circumstances where you say, you know what, I'm suffering right now. I'm struggling right now. Luke adds this. The author of Luke who wrote the gospel said, take up your cross daily. Ouch. Okay, he says, take up your cross daily. What does it mean for us to take up our cross? See, so many people can't even realize it because, well, one, we're not willing to do the first step, deny ourselves and empty ourselves. But when we <laughs> deny ourselves and empty ourselves and we delight ourselves in Him, what's going to happen is you'll realize the reason you've been put on this planet. 
And when you realize the reason you're going to be put on this planet, you understand that, you're going to say, but the reason I'm put on this planet, God, it's too big for me. And he's going to say, yeah, I've got that covered too, because I made an exchange. When Jesus left this earth and went to heaven, I sent the Holy Spirit so you could have everything you do to be able to recognize the cross I've asked you to carry and to have the strength to carry it. That's the good news of the gospel. You can do exactly what God put you on this planet to do, no matter where you're at today, no matter how you walked in here, no matter what your past is. This is the truth of the gospel. Denying ourselves, taking up our cross. Problem is this. So many of us can't take up our cross and follow his mission because we're so hell-bent on our own mission. It's a mission we never consulted him about in the first place. So my life is over here, then it's over there, then it's over here, then it's over there. And God is kind of in the nicest way saying, listen, slow your roll. Stop. Be still. Delight yourself. You're so busy trying to figure it out. God's saying, no, just deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, there's another part of that phrase, follow me. Okay? And the follow me part of it is very significant. Because who you're following right now is evident in your life. Ask the people around you. Because you look like who you're following. We say it all the time. When I was a kid, it was Miami Vice. Don Johnson. I was the only eighth grader going to school in gray pants, dock siders, no socks, a white jacket, a black t-shirt, and they beat me up. <laughs> Repeatedly. But I wanted to fall. I wanted to talk like Don Johnson. I wanted to act like Don Johnson. I wanted to be him. I was following him. Listen, through my life, I've been an impersonator. I impersonate people. It's one of the things that I love doing. I've always loved doing it. But the one that I want to imitate now is one, and that's Jesus. Because he's the only one worth imitating. Now. now think about this for a second. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Basically, follow me as I follow Christ. Now certainly you've driven on 995, and sometimes people drive like idiots. Let's be 100% today. Okay, sometimes people are like, they're swerving in and out of traffic, they're speeding, going in and out of traffic, you're saying, hey, I want to drive like them. No. Okay, some people are spending money, and they're wasting away money, and you say, okay, well, I want to follow them. No. Unless you want to follow them to the poorhouse. Who do you want to follow? For my wife and I, well, when we did premarital counseling, there's a couple in our church that have been married 58 years. And there's something about that relationship between Arthur and Elsa Hart that uh, there's something about that relationship that we wanted to emulate. 58 years... <laughs> And they were still very lovey-dovey, still very affectionate to one another. 58 years of that? Yeah, I could go for that with her. 100%. So we sat down with them in counseling. We said, listen, we want what they have. But I only wanted what they had as far as it served to imitate Christ. Anything other than that we don't want. What does it mean to follow Jesus? How do you know you're following Jesus? Study Jesus. 
talk to Jesus, spend time in the Gospels with Jesus. The stories are right there. But I don't know what Jesus would do in this situation. Keep drawing close to him in the Gospels. You'll know. Because wisdom is promised to you. It's promised. And so if I'm not having wisdom in a moment, well, then I need to go back to the Word of God. He'll give it to you. It's not the pastor's word. That's the word of God. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him go to God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let he who asks be not like a wave blown and tossed about by the wind. That's James 1, 5, and 6. That's God's promise. Anything that a pastor says ever, you have to chew the meat, spit out the bones, and make sure it measures up to this. Amen. It's got to measure up to the Word of God. Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like to follow me. You take up your cross, you deny yourself, and you follow me. The other way around, deny yourself, take up your cross. There's got to be an emptying so there can be a filling. And if there's no emptying, then again... What exactly are we filling up on? Verse 35, he says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? How many of you have seen talented people, so talented, it seems like they've sold their soul for the things of this world, for the fame, for the more, for the fortune, for the money, for the power. What they all have in common is that they have to stand before God. And we make these silly exchanges because we don't understand the implications of what we're trading when we take the temporary, physical, and we put it on the altar instead of embracing the spiritual and the eternal. How many of you here have heard of Ronald Wayne? Anybody? Of course you have. Ronald Wayne is known for selling his share in Apple in 1976. Wayne, who worked with Steve Jobs at Atari, sold his 10% stake for $800. What he sold now is currently worth $83 billion. Yeah, dang, all God's people said, oh, wow. Yeah, ouch, all God's people said, ouch, is exactly right. How many of you have made exchanges? Me, I had a baseball card in 1971. Thurman Munson rookie card with a mistake on it that was worth $10,000 today. I traded it for a New York Mets team card because I like the color of the Mets better than I like the color of the, the Yankees. I traded my Thurman Munson card. I had no idea what I had in my hand. But it's the same way with us. When you finally come to the understanding that a value has been assigned to you, that God loved you enough to send his son to go to a cross for you. Because you were created for the things of all of eternity. When you get that, Jesus tells a parable about a man that 
finds the pearl of greatest price and sells everything else that he has because he found the one thing that was worth everything. See, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about exchange. But there's not going to be that exchange if you're still trying to hold on to the things of earth and the things of heaven at the same time. You have to make a choice. If you want one, you have to let go of the other, but you can't have both. If you're pursuing the things of heaven, and it's, it's my favorite C.S. Lewis quote, you've heard it a thousand times, aim for the things of heaven, you get earth thrown in, aim for the things of earth, then you miss everything. I'm going to get one more passage today, and it's from the book of Philippians. And I go to this passage in Philippians, and I just want to read this just before we turn there. One of the things that Jesus says here is like, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, do you remember what the Apostle Paul said? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of it. False choices reflected a man that was not ashamed of it. As a matter of fact, Paul ultimately gets to the point where he's made the exchange. Because listen to what he says from a prison cell to the church in Philippi. It's chapter 1, verse, we'll start at verse 19 and we'll read on. It says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by my life or by my death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Stop right there. Do you see what's happening? He's torn in a beautiful way. He's saying, listen, if I live, I'm going to continue to bear fruit for Jesus Christ on this earth. But if I die, I know where I'm going. There's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, there's no more tears. I'm in the presence of my Savior in the fullness of joy and perfect peace. Listen, until you have that understanding, which is God's desire for each of his children to look at the things of heaven and choose the things of heaven over the things of earth, then you'll be pursuing the intangible things that Jesus Christ gives when he gives you the Holy Spirit so that you can have love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control right here on this planet till the day he comes back. Because you're valuing the things of heaven. And that's the great exchange. That's why Paul was what, he's my, my, my favorite word is this, it's indefatigable. There's nothing you can do to him. Nothing you can do to Paul. Throw him in prison, you're going to write to Jesus. Take him out of prison, I'm going to preach Jesus. Okay, well, we're going to kill you, then I'll be with Jesus. Okay, well, I'm not going to kill you, we're going to let you live. Okay, then I'll keep preaching Jesus. What can you do to somebody like that? Nothing. Nothing. It seems to me a different mindset than what we're trying to cultivate in the church today. It's a Christianity often of convenience. From what we're seeing, Jesus is not talking about fans. Jesus is talking about followers. 
people wholly sold out to him, whatever it takes, no matter the cost. That's what he's talking about. And I hope that when we say something like this, when we hear these words that say, I have decided to follow Jesus, I have decided to follow Jesus, and we sing these songs, and we sing them at the top of our lungs, I hope we understand what they mean as we're shouting them out in church. Because this is what it means to follow Jesus. But you have to know who you're following. 